This is Bluey Truth, and I'm attorney Shirley Skyers Thomas. We explore a simple question of whether there is equity in the justice system. The content offered in this segment is personal reflection and interpretation. The views of my guests are not necessarily the views of Fluid Truth or Quinnipiac University. For clarity, this conversation has been edited. I'm pleased to introduce Ms. Sabrina Schuler as my guest today. Sabrina is the program manager of Specialized Foster Care for Family and Children's Agency. She focuses on advocating for the well-being of youth and their families within the child welfare system. She's also the CEO of Guiding Empowering Mentoring Services, LLC. I'm so appreciative that Ms. Schuler was able to sit down with me and share her story with us here at Fluid Truth. So I want to get your opinion and get your input on equity in the justice system. So again, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here, Shirley. Thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. So I pose this question to my guests, and I love that we can talk about this in terms of story. So what's your experience? What was the impact of the justice system as you see it? I'm currently working with the foster care system. I've been in human services for a long time, working with the youth and family services, but I can focus on right now being administrative level in the foster care system and really seeing the higher level, not being in the frontline aspect of the work um, and seeing how we need to, as a system, change the way we service families. When I say that, predominantly the overrepresented population is those of color, black and brown, and very few of Caucasian. I believe that the system is set up like that. I believe that it's intentional. Um, and now that I'm in that administrative uh, ask, uh, capacity, I'm able to have a voice. Recently, we had a couple of different scenarios. I can give you a few, a whole bunch, but I only have a few to tell today. Situations on how children of black and brown descent, children of black and brown heritage, don't get the support and the time that is necessary to support a family. I have a couple of situations where children are taken out of home for very simplistic reasons, such as I tell a story all the time because I'm also a trainer for foster parents. Um, and we recruit, we train, and we place children. And we work closely with DCF and the referrals that we get, we place with the children. So most of the kids that come in, they have a story. Um, so basically to talk about the equity and the support that these foster parents um, receive and also these bio parents receive, especially in the brown and black population, a story for as simple as this, a woman might be working and she needs a sitter and she may not be able to afford it because the majority of her children that come to care have a single parent home. And she might be working maybe an hour or two over the time that the child's supposed to be in the home uh, by themselves, which we call latchkey kids. I think we all had that. Get home from school, open that door, close the door, start your homework, make a sandwich and wait for me to get back. Nowadays, you have a neighbor that may call DCF and say, hey, this kid's been coming home by themselves for a long period of time and we just want somebody to check in. DCF will go into a black and brown home and they will take the kid without really offering support or sitting down talking to the parent to find out exactly why is this child being a latchkey kid. So we have kids that taken out of their homes for something simple as possibly just sitting with a bio mom and saying, 
hey, how can we help you? Can we give you a couple of hours of childcare as opposed to putting them in a system, which is a foster care home, would you pay so much more money to take care of when you can just simply just say, hey, we can give you a couple of dollars a week to be able to support you and that child. That's simple. Then we have, when you think about it, the aspect of the Caucasian side, you know, when I say that, when I compare and contrast, we had two family, uh, two brothers that we took from like Torrington area. He wasn't, they were in like a, a residential slash group home temporarily because whatever was going on in their home, they were taken out. So my job is to recruit, like I said, to find a home for these children. It doesn't matter to me where they are, children or children, no fault of their own that they're in the system. So I went and I had a foster parent kind of do the slow process, planning, trying to get this kid to come up to the Bridgeport area. We finally got him there after about a month or so of planning. And once they got to the home, they were placed in the Bassick school area over the Fairfield. If anybody knows anything about Bridgeport, it's okay. It's not the best side of town, but that's where they were placed. These two, two kids were they were kind of like the thuggy type sort of Caucasian kids trying to be something that they weren't. So when they got to the um, school, they realized that they was in a different district. They know that they realized it wasn't going to fit. So they never came back home. They AWOL. This is what we call it. They never returned home. When they left, they, we got a call and we had to figure it out. They were found. They went back up to Torrington area. And the difference between them and those of brown and black children they were automatically picked up and found a home for in the area where they were comfortable. I've known in the past children have, of color have left and gone for days at a time and nobody knows where they are. We don't really find a placement for them. It takes a long time to find them or if we even look for them. We don't have a lot of Caucasian families within our homes, but when we do have them, it seems like they are a priority. This might sound minor, but, you know, when these kids needed a home in Turrentine, it was found immediately and their clothes and stuff were picked up automatically to take them back to them. But I've known in situations where uh, children of color go AWOL, we call the police, the protocol the protocols to call the police, call DCF care line because they're DCF children and let them know. And we're supposed to kind of figure out how we can be able to bring them back into wherever they were. Uh, if they don't come back and say the foster parent don't want them or whatever have you, we have to find another placement for them. We find one, but the clothes could be sitting at that home for a very long time. That sounds very minor, but when you have things coming from a home that you've been taken out of, everything to you is very important. So sitting in a home for weeks at a time, your clothes, and you might have a teddy bear from something that you, you know, you took from home that your mom or your dad gave you, or you might have um, some sort of trinket or whatever. For them, that's very important. Yeah, that's basically some of the things that I've um, dealt with. This particular story, and I probably try to block it out of my head, but for some reason, it's hard every now and then it pops up, and I pray. This particular family, I did a lot of praying about. I do all the praying, but this one prayer was very, very, very horrific. So it was a family of four children um, who came into the system because of physical, mental, and sexual abuse by their own bio father. Um, the father was abusive to the mom, abusive to the children. They saw a lot of things that were explicit. When they came into care, we put them together because we do believe that children should be together because they are siblings. Unfortunately, because of the level of trauma that they endured, they were basically perpetrating on each other, abusing each other. So we had to separate them. We separate them. Two went separate homes and then we kept the two youngest together. 
They started together, but it was just too much for that particular foster home. When we separated him, the oldest one had already begun to program his mind to think a lot like his father. So for him, it was very hush-hush. What goes in a home stays in a home. There was another brother that was very abused because he knew the things that were going on were wrong. He just couldn't get with it. He would make comments and things of that nature. Um, and because of it, he had a lot of bruises and wounds and things of that nature. The other two were the younger two, but we had to keep them separate because the daughter, which was the only girl, was violated and she would go at night and possibly try to interact with her brother in a sexual aspect. So we had to separate them, but we had to really do a lot of supervised visits, a lot of planning, things of that nature. So finally the father was arrested, went to jail, thank God, you know, got some help. I, I really believe the jail was important, but also rehabilitation is important too. Um, the mom was, she received some support, some counseling, things of that nature. Long story short, after a few, I mean, a year or so, maybe less, don't quote me on the years or whatever at a time, the kids were unified with the family. We were very hesitant. We wasn't really in agreement with it. But the system felt like that they couldn't go back. When they returned, mom took them back. But the case was closed. You know, we really wanted to continue to support this family. Now, again, I don't know once they closed with us that they received, they didn't receive support. But one of the kids, the one that was really true to his heart and soul that it was wrong, he still stayed connected with the foster parent that he was with. He still realized that that home was a safe place for him. And he felt like he could speak to that foster mom and continue to receive verbal support and direction and things of that nature. My concern was the level of trauma that these children had endured, we didn't give them enough time to, undo, we can't undo it, but be able to provide the support that they need to begin to work on that trauma. Sending them back home, the oldest one probably was the father figure um, because he had a lot of his father's um, characteristics. The other one that knew it was wrong he started getting involved in the community with gangs and things of that nature, trying to find a family that he felt he could fit in. Not sure what happened to the two little ones. We did a lot of, they had a lot of therapy and I'm sure, and I'm hoping they still do. But what I'm saying to you and you know, to what we fight for is closing it and not continue to work. Um, and again, I don't know once they close with us what the, the system did, but I just felt like it was such a short notice and because the dad was arrested does not mean that the effects of the abuse and the all different types of abuse, emotional, physical, sexual, whatever, wasn't still raw. Because you're going back to a place where that's where it happened. And you still have a mom that's still dealing with some of that stuff. So when I say that, tell you that story, I'm not saying it to like backlash or nobody or anything like that. Those are some of the things that's concerning because there's a lot to be had when you come in this, in this system. You come in a system and receive the support you need. And we get a lot of support, don't get me wrong. But that level of abuse needs a lot of support, a lot of um, aftercare, a lot of follow-up, a lot of um, things that these kids were used to. Being able to maybe have the foster parents be a participant in some of that stuff because they built relationship with those foster parents where they felt was probably safe for them. Um, 
being able to have that connection with bio mom and saying, these are the things that we did with your kids and so on and so forth. So with that story, it was horrific. I still struggle with it when I'm talking about it. Um, and I just pray that, you know, even in Mr. Transition, because I'm all about family connection, reunification. I'm all about that. I think that's important. But sometimes I feel like we move too quick and we um, don't provide the adequate support. Is that a function, in your opinion, of the system or is that a function of individual agencies? So if we could consider a, a system as like this overarching gathering of policies and procedures and laws and all of the like, do you think it's a function of this overarching system or do you think it's a function of independent agencies? That's a very good question. I would say it's a collaborative too, the both. I think the system has to move in the direction they need to go. But I think if the private agencies advocate more and really push back, then we can be able to support those families that they're transitioning back. Regardless of the guardian is the system, but the providers that are providing the ongoing services knows the well-being of the child. They know what's going on, but they can fight a little harder and say, no, we still need to be involved. So I think it's a collaboration of two. That makes a lot of sense to me. And as we're having this conversation, I'm, I'm really catching the relevance. Because again, when I talk about the systems of equity and the justice system, and uh, whether there's equity in the justice system, I'm talking about what's the impact to all these different facets. And I've had a bunch of different conversations. So I'm glad to have this conversation with you that says, what's the impact to the children? What's the impact to the families? And, And you're really illuminating that. I'm currently also part of a SAC, which is statewide advisory committee. And I'm also part of a uh, regional, which is the RAC, Regional Advisory Committee. And I like this committee because I noticed that DCF is beginning to change their language. They're beginning to focus on family first, um, as where years ago you take them out, you want to foster care, and most likely kids hardly ever go back. And they use their institutionalized pipeline. Um, a lot of kids are placed in foster care, but then um, transition to other places like prison and other places like with this human traffic so prevalent things of that nature. So what we do in those particular um, committees is we talk about how we can support foster parents, how we can for, support bio parents, particularly bio parents now, you know, taking kids, sitting down, having those conversations, like I told you with the latchkey kid, and talk to the parents, say, what it is that we need? Family first, how can we help you? Is it too difficult? Do you have a family member that can take the child as opposed to just basically taking them out? Assessing whether or not the tolerance level that we have for them, whether we take them out or just basically add the supports or resources within the home to be able to keep families together. So I'm very excited about that new transition. We have a great DCF commissioner who's been with DCF for many, many years from frontline work to now she's the commissioner. She's amazing. She has no problem talking about the taboo words, racism. She has no problem talking about implicit bias. She has no problem talking about um, systemic racism, things that's uncomfortable. The new saying is we gotta be comfortable being uncomfortable. So I'm part of that conversation. So what I do is as a program manager where I am, I bring that information back. I talk to the people that I supervise. I explain to them when you go in the home, you need to have those conversations. You need to be able to teach people that you're working with that they have rights. Um, Cause the majority of them are brown and black. And again, um, a lot of them don't like to touch 
DCF because they still have the history of being the, the agency that takes their children. But I got to be honest, I got to advocate that DCF really have begun to change their conversation, really have begun to focus on it and really recognize the equity level and the disparity level between brown and black children and Caucasian children are very different. So for me, being on the team and those two committees, I have the voice to be able to say this is wrong. And it's going to start from the legislative level. We can work all day long, going into homes, doing the frontline work, but the laws and the things that this in the system um, that's been created for years, we need to change it. So when I think about what I do right now, I feel honored. I feel privileged. I feel like I have the right. I don't feel like I need to back down because I'm in it. And like I said, when you're the person that's in the front line, you really don't have a voice. But when you're administrative level, I really am blessed that I can have the voice. And I mean, I'm not um, talking at people. I'm talking with people, educating people to help them understand. I teach the people under me how to psychoeducate, how to teach people that they have rights, how to be able to support people, to let them know that people can't just come in and take children and not ever bring them back. It's bigger than just the children and families, the communities. Being able to help them understand working together as a team is power in numbers. Being able to educate them and understand that you don't have to settle, you don't have to accept. Um, being able to say, we got you, you know, we're going to support you. Um, being able to say during those meetings when a kid come in from whatever situation, the referral, what is the plan to reunify them with the family? How are we going to support this family to be able to get their child back? How are we going to support this family to be the best that they need to be so when the kid returns, they're not placed back into uh, the hands of DCF or in the system? In my training, I always use this example. If you was a kid that had a, a bio parent that's on drugs and you were seven or eight and you were the one that was feeding that adult, you were the one that was taking care of that mom, your dad or whoever it is that's the guardian, and somebody come in, we know is unhealthy, but that child for them is healthy. So you take that child out of the home. When that kid is running back home, it has nothing to do with us, it has nothing to do with the foster parent. It's the fact that I was the one that was taking care of my mom. I need to go back and I need to check on my mom to make sure that she's eating. I need to know if she has a needle in her arm from drugs that I take it out and throw it away. I need to know that my siblings are okay because I was the one taking care of them. It's so much deeper than being defiant. It's so much deeper than being disobedient. It's so much deeper than taking it personal. There's a lot of issues within our children that people don't understand. When you first take a child out of any type of home setting, regardless of we feel it's unhealthy or healthy, that's their healthy. That's their norm. And so teaching um, those that are involved, like the police officers, us as social workers, um, oh, he just bad or she just bad. No, I'm acting up enough because maybe you'll take me back home. So really understanding the system. And that's what I desire. And that's what my voice is to really talk about and really help others understand that. Because I have two children, too, that suffered from a single parent home and um, my daughter had behavior issues, um, very angry. My son has special needs. I didn't have nobody to help me advocate. I fought for them on my own. I educate myself the best I could. Um, I didn't have the knowledge when I could go into the school system and say, and fight for my daughter. I just, she got suspended. That's what they said. 
even though I knew that I probably could fight for them, but I didn't understand it. Um, being a single mom, trying to work, trying to uh, hold the household down, trying to be a disciplinary, trying to be nurturing, trying to be the breadwinner, trying to make sure they have food on their, their table, trying to be the teacher when they had homework, trying to be um, all those things that I need to be in, as in one person, I get it. So now that I have the knowledge and the understanding, I'm going to educate others. What are you looking to do right now? You have your own company. Where's your focal point? My business is called GEMS, Guide and Empower Mentoring Service, and that's what I look to do. Um, I have I contract with DCF. Um, I receive referrals to support uh, children that are that need that as, extra support as a mentor, uh, therapeutically struggling in the home, and we're trying to keep them with the bio parent. And um, my job is to sit down with this child and figure out what's going on, and then go back and talk to the parent and say, "Hey, I think this child need extra curriculum. I think this child need counseling. I think." Um, this child is struggling because, you know, they may have disclosed something because um, they can trust me. Um, I also do supervised visits. I sit with foster, uh, families and, and and I sit with them with their the kids that are in the transition phase of reunification. And I observe. And my job is to see how I can see how this kid is going to transition back successfully. Um, I empower parents to say, you have a voice when you're afraid of the system. Um so those are the areas why I also add my additional support for um, families that are dealing within the system, the child welfare system. To sum it up, you've said so many key things. You've spoken about the lack of equity through you know the, um, the stories that you shared, but that there's light at the end of the tunnel because of some of the conversations and some of the um, enlightenment and the implicit bias training and with your own life and why you have this compassion for people. So, Prina, thank you. Thank you for talking with me. I am glad to have this conversation. Thanks for listening in today. Special thanks to our executive producer, David DeRoche. Music is provided by Audio Harrow from their Jazz Lounge album. To learn more about all of our podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. You can listen to all of our podcasts on the platform or app of your choice. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at QU Podcasts. If you have a story to share or something you want to talk about, find us on social media or shoot us an email. That address is qupodcasts at qu.edu. On the next show, I'll be sitting down with Dr. Larry Wilner, practicing physician. All right, that's it for today. Till next time.